Welcome to the Holmesville Church of the Brethren. This is the worship service for July 17th, 2022. Join in our call to worship. When we come to this space, we bring all of ourselves. We bring joy and hope, dreams and prayers, grief and doubt, memories and heartache. God meets us here. God hears our prayers and sees our scars. With open hearts and authenticity, let us worship our good and gracious God. God of creation, humanity is capable of such evil. Stories in scripture alongside stories on the news remind us of that truth all the time. 
for the moments when we choose violence over peace, exclusion over inclusion, and fear over hope, forgive us. Unravel us, for we long to be changed. Gratefully we pray. Amen. Please remember, if you have any special prayer requests, you may contact Pastor Mary Beth or any of the deacons and let us know how we can pray for you. Let us pray. For the times we have lied to one another and the times we have been lied to, heal us, Jesus, Savior of the world. For the times we have laughed at another's pain and the times we have been laughed at, Heal us, Jesus, Savior of the world. For the times we have betrayed a friend, and the times we have been betrayed, heal us, Jesus, Savior of the world. For the times we have spoken when we should have remained silent, and the times we have remained silent when we should have spoken, heal us, Jesus, Savior of the world. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, Redeemer of the world, give us peace. Amen. We continue our series, Unraveled, with the story of Rizpah. Our scripture is 2 Samuel 3, 7. 21, 1 through 14. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Ayah. And Ishbael said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had tried to wipe them out in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make expiations that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put anyone to death in Israel. He said, What do you say that I should do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be handed over to us, and we will impale them before the Lord at Gibeon on the mountain of the Lord. The king said, I will hand them over. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Maholathite, 
He gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they impaled them on the mountain before the Lord. The seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it on a rock for herself from the beginning of harvest until rain fell on them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come on the bodies by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the people of Gebesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up, on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. He brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who had been impaled. They buried the bones of Saul and of his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of his father Kish. They did all that the king commanded. After that, God heeded supplications for the land. Unraveled Rizpah mourns her sons. King David was in a tough spot. Three years of famine, back to back. Three years in which his people were miserable, suffering, near starving. Imagine the Dust Bowl of the 1930s, except that there was no California to which migrants can move. There were no New Deal relief programs for drought victims. There was only dust, drought, hunger, and a struggling King David who was desperate to find someone else to blame for the nation's woes. So, the Bible says, King David inquired of the Lord, and somehow David gets the word that this was all his predecessor's fault. King Saul had not honored the treaty the Gibeonites had with Israel. Instead, he had slaughtered them indiscriminately in his misplaced zeal for Judah and Israel. So instead of asking the Lord what to do about this situation, David turns to the Gibeonites themselves. After doing a bit of hemming and hawing, they demand a blood retribution. They want revenge. So the request of David's seven sons of Saul seven being a complete number, that they may kill and make an example to the nations. King David is only too happy to comply. His relationship with Saul had always been a bit fraught, to say the least, and since he is working to cement his own power and get rid of potential rivals to his throne, having the Gibeonites slaughter Saul's progeny is all very convenient. And King David can claim, of course, that he is doing all this for his people, saving them from God's judgment in the form of famine. Except... It doesn't work that way. Oh, he hands over two sons of Saul, Rizpah's sons, and five grandsons of Saul, Rizpah's nephews, and they are executed horribly. 
left hanging on spikes to die, left hanging even after they are dead, left dangling like macabre lollipops on sticks as a warning for anyone else who may break a treaty with the Gibeonites. And we can picture King David dusting himself off and heading home whistling, Mission accomplished. Appease the Gibeonites. Check. Get rid of potential rivals to the throne. Check. Fix the famine. Wait. This is not working. This is so not working. Because, as we find out, the famine is still going on, even after this horror show is accomplished. Enter Rizpah. Rizpah is a nobody in her own right. She is a woman, for starters. She has no real power in such a patriarchal society, no power over even her own body. If Saul chose her to be one of his lesser wives, how could she refuse? And when the kingdom falls apart and Saul is dead, she becomes a victim to his army commander, Abner's thirst for power. And here, when King David sanctions the murder of Saul's progeny, she cannot even protect her own sons. No, she is forced to look on while her five nephews and her two sons become scapegoats in a state-sanctioned mass execution. But then she does the unexpected. She may not have had the power to save them from the wrath of men, but she will not let them be forgotten. She will not let the beasts of the field tear them, nor the birds of the air peck their rotting flesh. She will not. So she spreads her sackcloth on a rock near the execution site, and for the next six months, from the beginning of the barley harvest to the time when the fall rain should start, she guards these unburied bodies. Day and night she chases away the carrion birds and the scavenging beasts, sleeping in snatches in the open, eating whatever sympathetic neighbors or relatives may bring her, running and chasing and screaming and weeping, burned by the sun in the stench and the heat and the flies. She keeps her vigil. As she watches her son's bodies stiffen, soften, blacken, and decay, she keeps her vigil. She keeps her vigil. Because this one thing she can do, and who outside of killing her can stop her. Finally, Finally, the news of what Rizpah is doing reaches King David. Finally, he recognizes the wrong that has been done, even though he doesn't say the words. But what he does speaks louder than what he doesn't say. Because he orders the bones of these dead to be gathered, along with the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and he causes them to be buried decently. He gives them the dignity of a decent burial. Then, and only then, 
did God heed supplications for the land. I will be the first to admit it is a horrible story. I will bet that almost no one here has heard a sermon preached from this particular Bible story. It doesn't appear in the lectionary, and no wonder who would want to preach such a story, one that seems to have no redemption in it. Except, except... Being the grumpy Bible student that I am, this story made me wonder. I knew that the Levitical law forbade leaving dead bodies hanging. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, Leviticus 18, 24 through 27, and Numbers 35, 3 through 24 spell this out. That was one reason Jesus was taken from the cross before sunset. And I knew also that the law forbade executing children for the offenses of their parents. Deuteronomy 24.16 and Ezekiel 18.19-20 prohibit the practice of executing sons for the iniquity of the father. So why did this happen? Did not David have the law? Or didn't he care? Well, maybe not. Bible scholars are not sure whether these laws were laws at the time of David's reign. Just because the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy come before the books of Samuel in history doesn't mean that the law did not go through changes by the time they were written down. So what this could actually mean is that Rizpah may have caused change in the law. Rizpah opening her people's eyes to the injustice of state-sanctioned murder promoted justice by her faithful, solitary act of grief and love. Powerless Rizpah became a powerful witness. The closest modern-day equivalent I can find is the story of Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley. When Mamie Till Mobley heard about her son's kidnapping and murder, she was devastated. Emmett was her only child, a bright, handsome 14-year-old boy. But even more devastating than the news of his death was the way he had died. Kidnapped, beaten, mutilated, lynched, dropped in the river with a 75-pound fan blade wired around his neck. He was barely recognizable as human when he was found. The only thing that identified his body was a ring. Mamie Till Mobley fought for her son's body to be returned from Mississippi where he had been murdered to Chicago where he had lived with his mother. When advised that she should keep the casket closed, she refused, insisting on an open casket. In her words, 
I wanted the world to see what they did to my boy. An estimated 50,000 people passed by the casket of Emmett Till that day in 1955. Photographs appeared first in black publications, then in others all over the country. Many historians now count Emmett Till's death and Mamie Till Mobley's grief over his murder with the miscarriage of justice that followed as the spark that ignited the civil rights movement. Brothers and sisters, God can use our grief for good. God can use our sorrow and rage over the deaths of innocence. God can use us in God's push for justice. No matter how powerless we may feel when we put our grief in God's hands, that grief can move a nation. Rizpa, when her world unraveled into grief, stood a solitary witness, an indictment against an unjust act. And because of her stand, injustice unraveled just a bit. The scales were tipped toward justice by the weight of her tears. Let us pray. O God of justice, we weep for the injustice we see all around us. Help us to use our grief to stir us to action. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. i
receive the benediction. May you believe that you can make a difference. May you be unafraid to stand alone for what is right. And may God use you mightily to advance God's kingdom. Go in peace. Amen.